Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnayer. This week we have Dr. Stefan Szymanski, who is a professor at the University of Michigan, the co-author of Soccernomics, the author of Money in Football, and the author of a hundred or so academic papers on sports and sports finance, and probably considered the foremost expert on finance, economics, and uh, general uh, money trends in global football, uh, both at the club level and at the international level. And he's at the University of Michigan, and we have the great pleasure of speaking with him today. And Dr. Shemansky, I wanted to start the conversation, and again, thank you for being with us, wanted to start the conversation talking a little bit about the Premier League television rights deal, which is up now globally obviously we've seen a renewal on the domestic rights and the domestic rights and the the number hasn't changed in much in the last two rights cycles it had gone up exponentially before that but globally we see television rights for the premier league that have continued to grow every right cycle have continued to go up uh, here in the united states we have an incumbent in nbc who we understand would like to retain the rights uh, any number of other interested parties potentially uh, what do you see happening with the Premier League rights deal in this COVID era, but also an era where I think very clearly the balance of power in world football, at least on the pitch, has shifted from uh, the continent to England. And obviously the balance of power economically had shifted from the continent to England some time ago, but now also in a football sense. Okay. Oh, so hi, Cody, and, and really thank you for having me on, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so... Uh, the Premier League is sort of in an odd position right now because if you look at it in terms of the state of uh, global soccer, um, the Premier League um, dominance is, if anything, growing beyond what it was um, in, in, in anything it's ever been in the past. So um, the Premier League has been financially dominant now for uh, in, in soccer for the best part of 20 years, but now the, the really the club preeminence in competition is also beginning to um, uh, you know uh, supersede all of the other clubs. And whilst, for example, um, particularly La Liga, Barcelona, and Real Madrid have been have attracted more global attention um, than any one club in in England. Right now, you can see that, that, that given that their financial crises are so great, um, that, uh, that, that um, the attention is shifting more and more towards the Premier League. 
the Bundesliga's attempt to, to, to compete with the Premier League is really foundering on the, the endless dominance of, of um, uh, Bayern Munich and the failure to really ignite any, any interest based around that. So in some ways it, it's never been stronger, but at the same time you also have to say, well, this is one of those periods in the history of broadcast rights where um, everything's up in the air. We don't really know where where value is coming from in, in, in broadcast rights in the future because traditional um, linear TV is, is, is on the way out and we're moving with more and more people cutting cords, with people starting to, young people watching soccer in different ways from the way they have historically, um, more interest in streaming, less interest in sitting down and watching an entire game. What that does to the value of broadcast rights is really uncertain. And um, five to ten years, then we're going to be writing learned papers about what happened. Um, but it's still sort of up in the air at the moment. My guess is, whenever any broadcasting revolution has happened, the value of rights has just shot up further. So, it, if history is any guide, then at the end, when the dust settles, the Premier League is going to be making even more money than it has currently. But how it does that, how it converts those rights into cash, is going to is going to change. And um, I guess uh, if I knew uh, exactly how that was going to happen, I guess I'd be sitting there um, on an island in the Bahamas, having made my billions in speculating <laughs> broadcast rights, rather than sitting here in Ann Arbor as a professor, just trying to follow from a distance what what's actually going on. Obviously, because of UK competition law, there has always been a split in the rights in in the domestic market for the Premier League. So, for example, there's six packages. Sky, at most, could only have five. And oftentimes we've seen them have five and there'd be another rights holder with the sixth or four, as is the current case, and and one package for, for BT and one package for Amazon. Uh, do you see something like that potentially happening in, in the United States and in other foreign markets, given the escalating cost of uh, of of rights for the Premier League, in addition to what, what you're talking about with the different medians, uh, linear versus uh, digital, etc.? Yeah. So, as you point out, I mean, there's the, the competition authorities in the UK have already mandated an element of competition in the distribution of um, Premier League rights. And, and there's always been a difference between the way European uh, clubs and leagues view this and the way Americans view this. I mean, you've always had fragmentation of the broadcast rights amongst different broadcasters in the US. That's been the norm. And in fact, um, the, the leagues themselves have seen that as being, you know, fostering healthy competition to enhance the value of what they're selling. And it's been curious in Europe that the leagues have tended to focus on a single broadcast and really to hand over exclusivity. Um, and um, the reason for the resistance to that historically by the competition authorities is that um, in the cable um, and satellite era, that's handed a lot of dominance to Sky, which they've used to leverage um, so Sky obviously is Fox in the US, so um, that used to, to leverage the, the success of the overall product and brand in, in other areas. Um, so 
what's happening, but what's obviously been happening in sports is is increasing fragmentation, particularly with new platforms coming on stream, um, like uh, Google and Amazon and Netflix and so on. And so that is uh, that is creating more competition and creating more opportunities to spread uh, content around platforms. And I think we're going to see. The, the the Premier League negotiate uh, new ways to share its content across multiple platforms. That requires a, a strategic rethink. It's not doing things the way they've always done them in the past. Um, but I think that's the way they're going to enhance the value of their rights in the long term. Before we move on from the Premier League, I want to ask you specifically about Brexit. There's been a lot of chatter about this, that the changing... Uh, scheme from the UK Home Office uh, in in order to allow players to enter the United Kingdom. Obviously, EU players, EU-based players, EU passport players could enter the UK uh, in an unlimited number prior to Brexit. So you saw not just Premier League clubs, but championship clubs and, and League One, League Two uh, load up on players from the continent. Now that's changed with Brexit. And in fact, the new work permit regimen makes it harder for players from the EU to come to the to the UK, much harder, but much easier in some respects for players from uh, North America, South America, Asia, and Africa to enter the United Kingdom and sign for a UK club. So the question is, long-term, will this hurt the Premier League and hurt the championship uh, in terms of their global marketability and their ability to attract players? What Brexit did was enable the UK government to adopt its own immigration policy um, and not to follow the common rules of access which were agreed by the EU. In practice, um, what difference does that make? Well, um, it it gives the UK a chance to cherry pick. So it gives it a chance to um, select those people that it wants without necessarily being governed by rules which are, um, which might be um, uh, deemed relevant to um, another country, but not necessarily relevant to the UK. And let's let's be frank, this is against a background of um, anti-immigration sentiment in the UK, a lot of which is tied up with xenophobia and racism. Um, So, and I'm not, as you probably tell, I'm not at all in favour of this. That said, in practice, what it's going to do is the UK is going to let in anybody who it thinks is going to be useful to the UK, and letting in... you know, Cristiano Ronaldo is a no-brainer for the UK, and there's no, there's absolutely no sense in which the, the it would make it, it, the government would ever prevent the Premier League or the Championship importing top stars from other countries to play yet to play in England, giving them work permits. What perhaps the bigger issue is for uh, perhaps players uh, who would maybe. Be from other countries who might be able to play in um, at levels like uh, League One or um, the, the the National League um, the, the, in the lower tiers, and um, that probably will be harder for uh, players to get in simply because um, the UK government is going to take the, the is going to take the view that there are, are English players who could take those positions. Again, I'm not especially in favour of that. Um, in fact, I'm not saying clearly I'm actually against that. But however, um, that's not really going to harm the Premier League or the Championship as, as I would see it. And so um, it, it's not really a, a threat to the league. It's just a reflection of increasing xenophobia. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And, and in fact, what we found so far, we're only a couple months into this post-Brexit football structure in the UK is that there's been really no discernible impact on Premier League clubs and maybe top championship clubs. They're getting the same players they were getting before. It, it may impact teams lower end of the championship, League One, League Two, who were getting players from the continent who were never going to get capped by their national teams, but maybe in their minds, better options or more economical options than the equivalent English player. And uh, so it, it could impact them. Anyway, moving on, wanted to um, discuss with you an article I penned last week for World Soccer Talk uh, on luxury taxes uh, in European football and the potential of using them in leagues like the Bundesliga and the Premier League, uh, which uh, there have been complaints about a lack of domestic competition. Uh, you pushed back on uh, on that publicly, uh, and I respect many of your arguments. Also, have to say, I'm looking at this as kind of a happy medium because like you and like many others, I don't want to see salary caps at all. And we'll talk about Spain in a little bit uh, with their salary cap, but don't want to see salary caps at all in European club football and definitely don't want to see closed leagues. I think they're both uh, ways of, 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 of uh, suppressing wages and, and suppressing competition. Uh, so luxury taxes. So, um, ever since the foundation of professional sports in the 19th century, leagues have engaged in, uh, uh, teams within leagues have engaged, particularly in the United States, in a number of restrictive practices uh, which are alleged to maintain competitive balance amongst the teams. So you can think of, uh, uh, and when you go back originally to in baseball to the reserve clause, which goes back to the 1870s, um, the reserve clause was originally alleged to uh, create uh, opportunities for all teams to hire the best players and stop the big teams um, uh, uh, monopolizing talent. But what the reserve clause really meant was that um, a player was tied to his club in perpetuity. Players still moved from the smaller clubs to the big clubs, but when they moved, there was a fee paid in order to facilitate the, the transfer, um, and, that, um, uh, and, and that therefore enhanced the profitability of the, the, the clubs at the expense of the players. Um, that was true of the reserve clause in baseball, and it's still true today to, of the transfer system in soccer. Um, but there are a number of other restraints that have similar kinds of effects. So, I mean, the most obvious one is a salary cap, where you limit, you, you just limit the amount that could be spent on player salaries, and everybody can see that if you limit the amount of player, that the money spent on salaries, then that leaves, uh, that means that there's money um, more money that can go into the pockets of the owners. So that's perhaps easy to see. But sometimes other mechanisms like luxury taxes and revenue sharing, it's less easy to see the mechanism of why that's making the teams more profitable. But in the case of, if we take the example of a luxury tax, what that says is teams that want to spend over a certain limit must pay a tax as a percentage of their overspend, which is then redistributed to other clubs. So you might say, well, what's wrong with that? That's just sharing out the money, uh, and that's a good thing. But what a tax does, uh, as, a, as an economic proposition, and a tax is always a discouragement to any economic activity. So, you know, if I put a 100% tax on beer and double the price of beer, then people will buy less beer. It's just, it's just more expensive to, to buy beer. And the same thing is going to be true of players. If you put a tax on investment in playing talent, 
that's going to discourage investment in playing talent. And what that means is a luxury tax causes the teams in aggregate to spend less on playing talent. And if it causes the team to spend less in aggregate on playing talent, that means more money left for the owners. So a luxury tax is just another way, another kind of restriction which helps to make the owners more profitable. Um, does it bring any other benefits? Well, allegedly, it means it creates more competitive balance um, amongst the teams. But I'd say two things on that. Firstly, um, it's not really clear that, that it really stops um, uh, the best teams getting the best talent. Um, it just means that they find mechanisms to shift the better players to the bigger clubs um, by underpaying by underplaying those players. Um, the incentives for the big clubs to attract the big players still exist. And the second thing is, and this is perhaps a bigger point, is one thing that soccer teaches us around the world is that fans really don't care that much about competitive imbalance. We have seen dominance of the same teams over and over again in European soccer, in the Premier League, in the Bundesliga, in La Liga, in Spain, and these still remain some of the most popular sports leagues in the world. Um, and uh, if, if there was a real problem with the dominance, then people would have lost interest in La Liga, for example, decades ago. So specifically on La Liga, they've had financial problems. Uh, they've had issues for years with certain clubs. Uh, they've had maybe competitive issues. Uh, that could be argued. And so... Uh, Javier Tebas put in place a salary cap idea many, many years ago. It, it, it did kick in a while ago, which I think a lot of people don't realize, but really got teeth this past year. Uh, with COVID, the decision was made to really enforce um, an even lower salary cap. Uh, what kind of impact do you think that's ha having uh, on Spain and, and just in general, the premise of salary caps in European domestic leagues? Well, I mean... Um Spain has always had um, has had financial crises many times over. So um, this is this is by no means the first time this has happened. So um, there was a, a financial crisis in 1990 that led to a restructuring of, of the league. Uh, they actually forced um, all the clubs um, to shift their ownership structure, um, except for the except for. Um, Barcelona, Real Madrid, um, uh, um, and Bilbao, I think, right? Absolutely, Bilbao yeah. and Osasuna was the other one, wasn't it? Right. But, yeah. And so there's, there's, uh, there was the, there was the crisis associated with, um, in 2008, with the, with the financial meltdown, which was led to some restructuring of finances and uh, debt forgiveness for clubs back then, and now this is another financial crisis which always relates to the same phenomenon that the clubs spend um, spend all their money on uh, buying players and will borrow money from anyone crazy enough to lend it to them. Um, and that leads to them to some kind of demand for a bailout. Now, in, in if you think about, this is not, the, the persistent financial crisis is not specific to Spain. They are it's a generic problem in, or a generic issue in soccer. Actually, I, my view is actually it's not uh, actually a problem really itself. It's it's not so much. Uh, it's a bug. It's a feature, not a bug. Um, and if you look at say England, 
clubs, uh, more than uh, 70 clubs have entered insolvency proceedings in the last 25 years in England. Um, and the thing to bear in mind about this is that what comes out of this is that the clubs always survive. Yeah. That, uh, that no, no club of any size. Sorry, uh, uh, Professor, I have to jump in right here because you're making such an important point. Clubs, and you talk about this in Soccernomics, very uh, in, in great depth. Clubs in England and on the European continent in open systems, even if they have financial problems, even if they have financial insolvency, even if they have bad owners, they generally survive. Whereas I can speak to this personally. I have seen a club I grew up supporting as a boy go out of business. I uh, here in uh, in the United States saw another one I supported go out of business and then had a club I worked for uh, that went out of business when I was an employee of the club. So uh, in closed leagues. So, so speak a little bit to that. Open leagues versus closed leagues in terms of uh, club survival. The, the clubs survive because they represent communities. Um, soccer has a pyramid system in which every town and village in the country can have a team and can aspire someday to rise up the pyramid and win the the, the championship title and of course the greatest example of that in recent history is of course leicester city in 2015 um, where they unexpectedly uh, got promoted and then a year later uh, won the premier league championship um, and in fact if you go back in 2002 actually leicester city was bankrupt um, it went into insolvency proceedings and was uh, saved. Um, actually, it was in part, it was saved by an investment by um, the, uh, the managers of uh, pension funds for academics in the United States, an organization called TIA Crest that pulled their stadium. So U.S. Uh, university professors actually did a lot to <laughs> um, promote Leicester City to ultimately winning of the Premier League title. And that, that seems to me is just a great example. They have a team that is bankrupt, that is revived, and then eventually goes on within within a, uh, a little over a decade, goes on to actually win the Premier League title. And that that I think is the thing that for an American audience is hard to fathom that that could that that is even a possibility. And it's the difference really between the interest of the owner who has a financial interest in the business and the club itself as an entity which uh, is really represents a, a team and the people who support that team. Now in America, these have been assumed to be one and the same thing, that the owner is the club and the club is nothing without the owner. And what the, the, the insolvency, not just in England, but all across uh, soccer around the world, which is a regular part of it, shows that when the owner disappears, the club survives. There is no need to placate owners by ensuring that they can make large sums of money because the clubs will survive within a system, a pyramid system with promotion and relegation. The reason that clubs in the United States fail when the owner loses money, and that's where, let's face it, the, when we say a club goes bust, what we really mean is the owner has gone bust. The owner of the club has, uh, has is no longer able to finance their business. When that happens in the United States, people shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, what's the point of reviving this thing? 
even if you win your local championship year after year, you're not going anywhere. You're never going to be the national champions. There's no opportunity to do what Leicester did. Right. Uh, and therefore, and that's why uh, in, in the closed league systems, financial failure leads to closure, whereas in open league systems, financial failure just leads to a relaunch and a phoenix rising from the ashes. So we had this double whammy this past spring, a uh, double hit of the attempted breakaway Super League, which had uh, mostly closed league uh, features. I know they're the proponents, the, the, the few proponents there were, uh, were um, claiming that it was actually open, but it wasn't uh, for the most part. And then uh, the Manchester United protests, supporters protests against the Glazer family. And what I found, Professor, during that period was a profound misunderstanding among many American fans. This uh, kind of idea that Manchester United is the personal possession of the Glazer family, whereas most of us who are grounded in football would see it as a community club uh, in uh, the Trafford uh, area of Greater Manchester that is a uh, has a massive supporters base, and the supporters are Manchester United. So that uh, was very eye opening for me. Even the press coverage here in the United States uh, of the Glazers and and the uh, the defense of the Glazers, maybe it was because they're Americans. I, I don't know. Uh, was very different than. Uh, over uh, across the pond in the UK and certainly uh, around the European continent. Different view of this thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the one, so one, so I mean, I teach this to my students a lot. So I teach classes where I, I have a very, I, with, a, with Professor Rod Ford, I have a very nice, we have a very nice class together where called Football and Football, where he teaches about the economics of American football, as we would call it from around the world, and he teach and I teach the economics of, of soccer, and we use the, these examples to contrast the differences. And one of the things I often, you know, say to talk about with the students in this class is is something that it seems absolutely natural to Americans, but would be a would actually causes a shudder of disgust in any non-American sports fan, and that is. When uh, at the end of the Super Bowl, when the the champion is being, when they hand out the award, when they hand over the trophy, they give the trophy to the owner of the team first. And when, if you explain that to a European soccer fan, they almost throw up at the very idea of that. The idea that it's the owner and somehow deserves to be rewarded, or deserves the credit for winning. Right. In all the pictures, you'd see uh, Richard Scudamore of Manchester United won the, the uh, Premier League title, handing the trophy to Gary Neville. Manchester City wins the Premier League trophy. Scudamore's handing the, the, the trophy to Vincent Company. Uh, you don't see Sheikh Mansour or Malcolm Glazer in the picture. Just as you don't give the World Cup to the president of the country, right? Right. <laughs> the team. And you maybe don't mind if the coach gets to hold on to it at some point. But the idea that the owner gets to do it is just a complete anathema. And that's where, with, so in some sense, American fans are right to say, legally speaking, the owner is, the owner does, it is their club, it belongs to them. So in that sense, the Americans have it right. But where they have it wrong, I think, is that the idea that the, the, that an owner has unlimited rights. And, in, and certainly, what the, the concept, really the concept of ownership is always limited. 
there you you're not allowed you, you can't do anything you like with your property you might like to you might think you can but you can't if you start to you know if i start to build a a, 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 a you know a multi-story parking space in on my uh net on my on my property somebody's going to come around and say to me hang on you can't do that you're not entitled to do whatever you want if i decide i'm going to open uh, you know, a, a, a liquor store in my house. Um, also, someone's going to come around and tell me you can't do that. You know, and there are lots of things you can't do with your property. And when it comes to sports teams, there are you know social norms. They're not just laws, but there are social norms about what you can and can't do. And that's the thing. The difference is the social norms in America are different. And for some reason, American fans, uh, to be honest, you know, are, are too compliant. I think they're too yeah. accepting of the idea that it belongs to the owner. And that's where Europeans differ in this: is that the Europeans are absolutely crystal clear. If you you may be the owner for now. But you may be gone sometime in the future, and the club is forever. So, you know, um, be nice, do your job, put money into the club, and otherwise shut up and sit in the background. Um, and and that's, that's what owners have to, have to live with. And in some ways, you know, that's what the European Super League was about, was about ownership, owners saying, well, no, we, we want to take over and run this thing. And the fans saying, you know, not on our watch. Last topic I wanted to get into with you today is 50 plus one. Uh, you've been involved uh, with Detroit City, supporter of Detroit City. Uh, and uh, I am actually a uh, the vice president of a supporter-owned club, University FC, a supporter-owned and funded, or actually I should say supporter-owned. We, we have sponsors, uh, as does uh, a number of the supporter-owned clubs in the U.S. It's something that's caught on in the U.S., so 50 plus one, which is the norm in Germany, which uh, you still technically have in Spain with the four clubs we talked about, Bilbao, uh, Osasuna, uh, Real Madrid, and Barcelona, although that's a little bit different than the German model. Um, 50 plus one is the, is the model in Germany, with the exception of a few clubs. A lot of talk in England about the possible uh, positives of 50 plus one and supporter ownership following the Super League debacle uh, in the spring. So uh, uh, give us your views and, and your thoughts about, about supporter ownership in 50 plus one. Right. So, I mean, I, I should start off by saying, I, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of fan ownership in, in, in sports. I think, it's, I think it's a great thing and something that should be promoted. Um, there's an organization in the UK that goes back uh, 30 odd years now called Supporters Direct that has had a very big role in advocating for fan involvement in running clubs. And um, uh, they, they typically advocate that a fan uh, owned trust should have own at least 20% of a club. And uh, the UK government, actually, in the light of what happened this year, is actually conducting a review. And it's, it's possible, and I by no means certain, but it's possible that the government might actually mandate something along those lines. The 50 plus one rule, of course, takes that even further in saying that the, the fans must have majority ownership. Um, but even that says, well, that 49% could be in the hands of a private investor. So the other thing I would say is, private investment so I'm not anti-capitalist in general so um, I think um, there are many positive aspects to, to capitalism and you know capitalism is a bit like tigers they're beautiful things but they have to be managed and controlled very carefully because they can be quite dangerous as well 
So the way, so the way I would, I think about these these ownership rules is that that um, we want we want to encourage private investors because they bring money into the game and the money to create entertainment for those of us who watch it. So I'm I'm, I'm in of encouraging that, but I also believe that there needs to be some uh, accountability, some transparency. And some way of making sure that the that, that, um, the, the the clubs are being um, managed um, in ways that are, are in the best interest of fans. Therefore, I think that that a limited degree of fan uh, 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 ownership rights is 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 a good idea. I don't think majority ownership is ne- is necessary here. I think if you have representation on the board on of a business, and uh, you have therefore the opportunity to inform people outside of the business about what's going on. You, in other words, if you have a seat at the table, you can keep, you can inform the rest of us about what's happening. And that's what I think. Having just having a say, uh, mandating a twenty percent ownership stake for a fan trust would be would be a good way to go because that would ensure that fans were rep- represented. They could then make. Uh, uh, what goes on inside the club transparent and that would be the interest of the fans. I think mandating fan control is danger- is, is, is risky because I think it, ri- I mean the, it risks discouraging investment by uh, people coming from outside the game and um, as I say in the last 20-30 uh, years, certainly looking at the Premier League, that money coming into the Premier League has actually been has been good for the Premier League and helped to make it into the very attractive league um, globally that it is today. Dr. Shemansky, thank you. And uh, where can uh, our listeners find you, your academic papers, your books, uh, and uh, uh, your your current uh, thoughts on, on the sport? Well, thank you very much, Connie. It's been a pleasure. So um, follow me on at SSZY. Uh, or, and um, uh, if you go to Amazon and type in Stefan Chemaisky, uh, you'll find plenty of books there um, uh, that I've authored, um, obviously. And uh, uh, should give a shout out for Soconomics with Simon Cooper. We're just working on the uh, World Cup edition for 2022. The oh, outstanding. And so I'm looking forward to having that out next year. As someone with multiple dog-eared copies of the book you wrote with Simon Cooper and every subsequent edition, I really look forward to uh, the 2022 and the new edition. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for having me. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 